Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Disney is one step closer to losing its self-governing status in Florida. The state's house today passed a bill that would strip Disney of its special rights. A new congressional map heads to the Florida governor's desk for signature. Florida lawmakers approve the map along party lines, while a number of Democrats protest during the House session. Another $1.3 billion to Ukraine. How will your tax money be spent? And can the U.S. sustain this level of spending as President Biden asks for more? We don't know how long this war will last. Johnny Depp was in the hot seat today as Amber Heard's lawyer got the chance to question the movie star. You can't say that you carried cocaine in that box? No, but it looks like it would fit some cocaine. Less than one month after its launch, CNN subscription streaming service, CNN Plus, is shutting down. CNN's new management reportedly has different plans for the company's direction. The decision put the jobs of hundreds of employees at risk. Florida's House today passed a bill that would revoke Disney's right to self-govern its properties around Orlando. Governor DeSantis says this bill is not retaliation against Disney for speaking up about the parental rights and education bill, which critics call the Don't Say Gay bill. But some Democrats say they're pretty sure it is. Senate Bill 4C was passed in the Florida House on Thursday with a 70 to 38 vote. The bill would dissolve Disney's special self-governing status around Orlando, where it's controlled about 40 square miles since 1967. Disney could end up paying significantly more in state taxes, but the move could damage relations between Disney and the Republican-led government. And Disney is a major political donor in Florida. DeSantis says Florida's constitution generally disfavors laws that provide special privileges to corporations. And on Wednesday, his spokeswoman said the move wasn't retaliatory after Disney criticized the parental rights and education bill, known to critics as the Don't Say Gay bill. But Democratic State Senator Audrey Gibson disagrees. She criticizes DeSantis, saying, It's the freedom state of Florida. If they disagree with the governor, he brings out the Gatling gun. It's not clear yet when the bill will be on the governor's desk. Florida lawmakers today also approved a new congressional map proposed by Governor Ron DeSantis. The map could give Republicans four more seats heading into the midterm elections in November. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. 68 yeas, 38 nays, Mr. Speaker. Show the bill passes. The Florida House passed a new congressional map on Thursday in a 68 to 38 vote largely along party lines. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis proposed the current map after vetoing previous proposals. The new map passed the state Senate a day ago and now heads to the governor's desk for signature. As we heard yesterday, we got really clean lines. We divide counties fewer times. We follow prominent geographic and political boundaries. And we've continued to improve our product. And I think we've done this in, in a fair and impartial way. Florida has 28 congressional seats following the 2020 census, and the new map will have 20 seats that lean Republican and eight that lean Democratic. During the debate on Thursday, some Democrats tried to prevent the bill from passing by disrupting the session and staging a sit-in for an hour. Members, we are back in session. As is obvious, we have members who decided they wanted to hijack our process today. Democrats opposing the new map say it violates the Fair District's amendment to the Florida Constitution and accuse Republicans of racial gerrymandering. This plan cuts minority districts in this state, African-American districts, in half. You don't want to be a part of that, and you don't want to be a part of contradicting the Florida Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. The Democrats are likely to challenge the new map in court. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. President Biden announces $1.3 billion in new aid to Ukraine. But at the same time, he says he's not sure how long the war will last and that the funds in the existing budget are running out. NTD's Iris Tao has more. 
Sometimes you will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. President Biden on Thursday announced the U.S. is spending another $1.3 billion in military and economic aid to Ukraine. The renewed support from U.S. taxpayers comes as Russia has claimed success in Mariupol, although Biden says there is no evidence yet. The new aid includes another round of $800 million in weapons. That's adding to the $800 million in military aid Biden just announced last week. We're sending it directly to the front lines of freedom, to the fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach. And there's another $500 million going directly toward the Ukrainian government for its operation. Meanwhile, Biden admits... We don't know how long this war will last. And he says with this latest disbursement, he has nearly exhausted the $13.6 billion in aid to Ukraine approved by Congress last month. Therefore... Next week, I'm going to have to be sending to Congress a supplemental budget request. The heavy spending, meanwhile, is raising one question. And how long can the U.S. maintain the level and pace of this military support for Ukraine? I, well, we have the capacity to do this for a, a long time. But even if that's true, some question whether it's worth it. You know, everything is a trade-off. We are providing that money, but we are not focusing on things which are of much more interest to us, for example, the southern border in the United States, or the rise of China, or inflation. Another concern stems from whether U.S. manpower can stay safe while having to deliver all the weapons on the ground. What if the Russians feel threatened and there is a miscalculation? What if one of their missiles strike an American or a European convoy, which is within Ukraine? In addition, Biden announced a new humanitarian program dubbed Unite for Ukraine to fast-track Ukrainian refugees coming to the U.S. It's expected to comprise the majority of the 100,000 people that Biden has pledged to welcome to this country. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. You can catch the full interview with Samantha Maitra at, about the cost of the Ukraine war at 8 p.m. on Capitol Report. Now, turning to the southern border, the White House is extending its vaccine requirement for people entering the U.S. And for those who aren't vaccinated, the Department of Homeland Security is providing the vaccines. NTD's Milena Weiskup has the details. People entering the U.S. via land ports of entry and ferry terminals must be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. The Department of Homeland Security just extended the requirement on Thursday. And those who've illegally crossed the border and have been taken into custody, they're getting the shot too. The DHS says it's ramping up efforts to vaccinate the majority of non-citizens in custody. Robert Law is an expert with the Center for Immigration Studies, a D.C.-based research institute. He explains the current situation at the southern border. Uh, just last month in, in March, over 200,000 illegal aliens were encountered at the border. And encountered is just the buzzword that the Biden administration uses in, in place of arrested. Um, this is the highest level for a March since the year 2000. Vaccinating illegal immigrants is part of the administration's plan to prevent the spread of COVID-19 as they prepare to lift Title 42, a rule created to prevent the spread of the virus. The White House is planning to lift this restriction one month from now, leading to an expected 12 to 18,000 people per day to cross the border. Even in the face of calls from congressional Republicans and top Democrats to reverse course, the White House is sticking to its plan to allow Title 42 to end. Congress gave the CDC authority to make determinations about when it should be lifted. So right now, we are planning and preparing for the end of Title 42 enforcement on May 23rd. This messaging, the law says, could make the issue worse by allowing cartels a window of opportunity. By telegraphing it, what you've done is you've basically given the cartels, the coyotes, and the smugglers about a 60-day heads up to do your recruiting, uh, to get your caravans lined up and ready to go, and it will just completely overwhelm the border. And this is compounded by the thousands of Ukrainian refugees who have also made their way to the southern border and are now waiting to enter the U.S. And to prepare for this expected border surge, Congress gave the DHS a historic amount of money this year, over $1 billion. But the DHS says this may not be enough and they might have to ask Congress for even more. This comes at the same time as President Biden is urging Congress to pass another $20 billion in COVID response, which would include money to distribute more vaccines. 
Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The Supreme Court today said a disabled Puerto Rican man can't receive disability benefits. In an 8-to-1 vote, the court ruled excluding him is constitutional. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Jose Luis Baeo Madero was a New York resident when he first began receiving Social Security payments in his New York bank account after suffering a series of strokes. For several years, the U.S. government continued to pay him benefits, unaware that he had moved back to Puerto Rico. The overpayment totaled more than $28,000. When the payments stopped, Vallejo Madero notified the Social Security Administration, and the government sued him because residents of Puerto Rico are not eligible for Social Security benefits. Vallejo Madero argued that his equal protection rights under the U.S. Constitution were violated. But the Supreme Court said residents of territories, such as Puerto Rico, are distinguished from residents of the states in tax and benefits programs. The court explained that because Congress had excluded Puerto Rico residents from paying federal taxes, likewise, it could treat them differently. The only dissenting judge, Sonia Sotomayor, wrote, The Supplemental Security Income Program provides a guaranteed minimum income to certain vulnerable citizens who lack the means to support themselves. If they meet uniform federal eligibility criteria, recipients are entitled to SSI regardless of their contributions. The court cautioned that if this resident is allowed to receive disability benefits, Congress would then likely need to extend other federal benefits to the territories, which might later lead to the territories having to pay federal taxes. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Johnny Depp was in the hot seat today in his defamation lawsuit against Amber Heard, his ex-wife. Heard's lawyer questioned Depp mostly about his substance abuse and some damaging photos. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Heard's lawyer, Ben Rottenborn, displayed a picture of a table with alcohol and lines of cocaine. You had an argument that morning in which you accused Amber of cheating on you. Do you remember that? Um, I believe Amber had an argument with me. The lawyer then keyed in on the box on the table that had the initials J.D. on it. The box was a gift from someone. I can't say that I carried cocaine in it, no. You, you, you can't it, say that you carried cocaine in that box? No, but it looks like it would fit some cocaine. I, I, I... People in the courtroom could be heard laughing during the many back and forths between Depp and Heard's lawyer. Then Rottenborn brought up this picture. This is a picture of you on a, on a black leather couch passed out, correct? Passed out's an interesting way of putting it. Maybe asleep. Depp said the picture was taken after he had worked a 17-hour day and had taken opiates. Depp claimed that Hurd gave him the ice cream when he was nodding off. Um, and if you'll notice, my right hand is in my pocket because she knew what was going to happen, okay. that I would fall asleep and it would drop. And that was a wonderful picture to take for her. Sure. I so, don't know why she took it. But. Well, so it's Miss Hurd's fault that that picture was taken. That's what, is that what you're saying? She, she snapped it. Depp is suing Hurd for $50 million because of an op-ed that she wrote calling herself an abuse survivor. Depp says that hurt his movie career. Um, Hurd has yet to take the might, stand you know, in the trial, which is expected to last six weeks. Jason Perry, NTD News. CNN's subscription streaming service, CNN Plus, is shutting down just one month after its launch. The decision was made by CNN's new management. CNN's incoming CEO says hundreds of CNN Plus staffers may lose their jobs. According to CNN, management notified employees of the decision this afternoon and told them it was a uniquely bad situation. Incoming CNN CEO Chris Licht told staffers the streaming service had an incredibly successful launch but was simply incompatible with the newly merged company plans. CNN's former parent company Warner Media merged with Discovery earlier this month. As for CNN Plus employees, Licht says they will be paid while they explore opportunities within the company. Staffers who aren't absorbed elsewhere will ultimately be let go. The service will officially shut down on April 30th. Coming up, guests at a Florida wedding were in for an unpleasant surprise.
Turns out the food served was laced with marijuana. And in the NBA, the Dallas Mavericks are playing game three tonight. Will their sideline superstar give it a go? That and more coming up on NTD News. Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. A follow-up on a story we reported on yesterday. Federal prosecutors say New York City jails should be taken over by an independent organization because of ongoing violence in the jails, especially on Rikers Island. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is responding. The crisis of Rikers did not start January 1st, 2022. The crisis with Rikers have been happening for decades, decades, all I say is give me a chance. Give me a chance. We have, we have witnessed how others have failed. Now give me a chance. At least 16 inmates died in Rikers Island in 2021. Many more were injured and pictures of alleged inhumane living conditions have surfaced. Some organizations have been advocating closing down the prison completely. A Florida woman and her wedding caterer are facing charges for an unforgettable wedding that most attendees don't want to remember. The bride, Dania Svoboda, and the caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, are accused of spiking the food at the reception with marijuana. They've been charged with violating the state's anti-tampering act, culpable negligence, and delivery of marijuana. Some of the guests at the February event were treated at the scene. They said they felt ill or intoxicated. Many people there also tested positive for THC when they were seen at local hospitals and clinics. Authorities confirmed the food at the reception site was laced with the drug. Svoboda and Bryant are out on bond. They are scheduled to be arraigned in June. As more states legalize cannabis, accidental consumption of marijuana has become increasingly common. A performer at a haunted house in Southern Carolina was shot by a scared visitor. The suspect told the police he thought the gun was a prop and part of the experience. The incident took place at the Hollywood Wax Museum haunted house in Myrtle Beach. Several members of the group were frightened by a performer. Police say one person in the group fell to the ground and during the scramble a gun slid back and struck the suspect in the foot. He says he believed the gun was a prop and part of the experience. He picked it up and fired twice, striking the performer once in the shoulder. He then fled the scene, but was later arrested. An Apple store in Atlanta, Georgia, could be the company's first to, in the U.S. to unionize. Workers there on Wednesday filed a petition to hold a union election, riding the momentum of efforts at other major corporations like Starbucks and Amazon. I mean, there is no doubt that what we are seeing right now is and a stark moment. Wilma Liebman was chairman of the National Labor Relations Board under the Obama administration. I think they have a inside movement called Apple II, T-O-O. Um, so I, I, I think filing actually for an election is to some extent the, a logical next step. Apple's workers at Cumberland Mall are hoping to join the Communication Workers of America. That union, which backs the workers' effort, said that of the more than 100 workers eligible to join in sales, technical, creative, and operations roles, over 70% signed cards expressing their desire to organize. A spokesperson for the National Labor Relations Board confirmed the agency's Atlanta office received the union petition on Wednesday. If certain conditions are met, the NLRB will work with the union and the employer to arrange an election. Apple did not immediately respond to requests for comment. And Tesla released its first quarter earnings, beating expectations on revenue along with record margins. 
NTD's Phil Zhou has the story. Tesla reported close to $19 billion in revenue for the first quarter, beating out analysts' expectations by nearly $1 billion. Earnings per share came in at $3.22, when analysts expected only $2.26. Tesla stocks rose over 5% in after-hours trading. When does the narrative shift from people realizing that Tesla is just one of many electric vehicle makers and maybe is getting too highly priced. John Engel is president of Almington Capital. He is also a contributor who covers Tesla and more on the financial website Seeking Alpha. Tesla's priced differently because it is more than an automaker. Uh, unfortunately, that is becoming increasingly less the case in that its revenues from non-automotive continue to, to either decline in the case of solar deployments or grow at a slower pace than its, than its automotive business. In Tesla's energy department, solar deployment dropped by almost a half to 48 megawatts year-on-year. Engel says Tesla's big promises, such as the robo-taxi by 2024, is likely to fall short. Holding it at the current price is probably not optimal because you're looking at a company that will have to eventually meet these massive expectations, and even when it has done so, like say a decade out, it's still probably 10, if, even if its share price is flat for the next decade, would still be significantly overvalued for what it is. Tesla is currently trading at around $1,008. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Phil Lenova head coach Jay Wright has announced his immediate retirement, a somewhat stunning turn of events for the man who led the Wildcats to a pair of recent national championships. Earlier this month, the 60-year-old Wright had just led his team to their fourth Final Four under his watch, where they lost to Kansas. Previously, Wright led them to titles in 2016 and 2018, the second and third championships in school history. Wright had been Villanova's head coach since 2001 and won eight Big East regular season titles to go along with five Big East tournament championships. Before he came to Villanova, Wright was the head coach at Hofstra for seven seasons. Wright's sudden departure leaves just two current head coaches, Bill Self and Rick Pitino, who've won multiple championships. World number one tennis player Novak Djokovic said that Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is crazy. I will always condemn war. I will never support war, being myself a child of war. I know how much emotional trauma it leaves. Us here in Serbia, we all know well what was happening in 1999. In the Balkans, we have had many wars in recent history. Ordinary people always suffer most. However, I cannot support the decision of Wimbledon. I think it is crazy. Players, tennis players, athletes, they have nothing to do with it. So when politics interferes with sport, it doesn't turn out well. Wimbledon announced the ban on Wednesday. It's the first tennis tournament to ban individual competitors from the two countries. Djokovic grew up in war-torn Serbia. He made his comments against the Wimbledon decision at the Serbia Open in Belgrade. The decision has been criticized by the ATP and WTA tours. The move is the first time players have been banned on grounds of nationality since the immediate post-World War II era when German and Japanese players were excluded. The All England Lawn Tennis Club said it would consider and respond accordingly if circumstances change between now and the beginning of the tournament. Washington Capitals star Alex Ovechkin scored his 49th and 50th goals of the season last night in the team's 4-3 loss to the Vegas Golden Knights. The milestone made the 36-year-old Ovechkin the oldest player to score 50 goals in a season. It also marked the ninth 50-goal campaign of his career, tying Mike Bossy and Wayne Gretzky for most in NHL history. Obviously, it's pretty good company, said Ovechkin. For the season, Ovechkin is now tied for third in goals scored, while ranking 12th in points. For his career, Ovechkin is the active leader in goals with 780 and sits just 21 behind the legendary Gordie Howe for second place all-time, with both trailing Gretzky. Three more NBA games are on the schedule this evening as the first round of the playoffs continue. The highlight may be the expected return of Dallas star Luka Doncic, who missed the first two games of the series with a calf injury. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Timberwolves host the Grizzlies in the opener tonight as the NBA's two highest scoring teams have split the first two games. 
John Morant has put up 27.5 points and 9 assists per game to lead Memphis. Meanwhile, Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns have combined to score 50 points between them for Minnesota in what's been an entertaining series. Dallas was saved from an 0-2 hold by Jalen Brunson, who scored 41 in Game 2 to lead the Mavericks past the Jazz. Dallas will gladly welcome back Luka Doncic should he return, although it remains to be seen how effective he would be. Utah's Donovan Mitchell has been the team's high scorer in the first two games at 33 points per, but has shot just 39% from the floor. And in the nightcap, reigning MVP Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets try to dig their way out of an 0-2 hole against the Warriors. Jokic has had his way in the lane, putting up 25.5 points and 10.5 rebounds a game, but Golden State has countered with a balanced three-point attack. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have been their stellar selves, but it's budding star Jordan Poole who has been the difference, leading the team in scoring and three-point shooting. And finally, Suns guard Devin Booker may be out longer than expected, with ESPN reporting he has a grade one hamstring strain that could sideline him for two to three weeks. Dave Martin, NTD News. A post office in Southern California was renamed in honor of a Vietnam War veteran. After returning from the war, he spent the remainder of his life advocating for other veterans. NTD's Daniel Hall has the story. Officially named this post office the Jose Ramos Post Office. On Wednesday, local officials in Whittier, California dedicated the post office in honor of Vietnam War veteran Jose G. Ramos. He worked as a lifelong advocate for veterans. But we are here today nonetheless, and it's my pleasure to honor Jose Ramos, his service, and the legacy he left behind for us to follow. Ramos returned from the Vietnam War after being shot in the leg and was diagnosed with PTSD. But he didn't let the diagnosis get in his way as he dedicated his life to advocating both locally and nationally for the veteran community. He got all the way to Washington, D.C., where he pushed lawmakers to finally recognize the sacrifice, service, and years of mistreatment Vietnam veterans had endured. Ramos enlisted in the Army while he was in the 10th grade. He served as a combat medic in 1968. He received the Purple Heart for his service. After returning home, he worked at the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center and Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital until his retirement in 1999. Ramos's family joined the ceremony. My brother was a very, very good father, a good brother, a good son, and when he came back, he was even better from the, when he came back from Vietnam. Uh, he's a, a great role model mentor. And um, uh, he's just a champion. Ramos previously petitioned the federal government to recognize March 30th as a day to honor Vietnam veterans. He succumbed to pancreatic cancer five years ago on September 2nd, 2017. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Coming up after the break, Los Angeles County's outspoken sheriff says the Board of Supervisors is working against public safety. He held his own press conference to respond to a recent L.A. budget proposal. And a one-of-a-kind opera in Los Angeles. The catch? The actors are all deaf and performed in sign language. We'll look at how they, the team did it when we return on NTD News. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva decided to host his own press conference to discuss the county's Board of Supervisors proposed budget. He said the current budget is limiting his department's ability to hire and uphold public safety. NTD Cynthia Kai reports. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva criticized the county's recommended $38.6 billion budget for the 2022-23 fiscal year specifically for its lack of public safety funding. In a press conference on April 20th, he claimed the Board of Supervisors is devaluing public safety by reallocating the Sheriff's Department's funds to alternative programs and maintaining a hiring freeze. So right now we're in a free fall and we're shrinking. 
So if that's the board's, uh, what a commitment to public safety looks like, I fear for the safety of LA County. County CEO Fisher Davenport said during an April 18th press conference that Villanueva requested a $5 million budget increase, which the county denied. Under the proposed budget, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department will receive $3.6 billion, about the same as the current fiscal year. The board proposed an additional $12.3 million to expand the Sheriff's Academy for training deputies and $15.3 million to close the Men's Central Jail in downtown Los Angeles. It also reflects, this is the board's language, it reflects a commitment to public safety. That's not a commitment to public safety. You're giving me $12 million, but you're restricting my ability to hire the people and lift the hiring freeze on the Sheriff's Department is not a commitment to public safety. Despite the funding for the Sheriff's Academy, Villanueva said the county-imposed hiring freeze is limiting his office's ability to hire civilians to support essential personnel or sworn officers. They did discuss, however, somehow to increase hiring for the fire department, health services, and all these other entities, but not the Sheriff's Department. Villanueva cited his office's inability to hire new staff for the LASD's forensic crime lab. When you're restricting academy class, you can't hire civilians. We have our crime lab, which is overwhelmingly uh, professional staff. We have not hired a single person since I've been in office. And as they're aging out and retiring, we're not replacing them. We're losing institutional knowledge. We're losing the capacity to train their replacements. And of course, we're degrading the capacity of the crime lab. According to a March statement by the county CEO's office, the sheriff can still hire critical positions such as officers and 1,000 non-sworn reserve officers. As for the $15.3 million to close Men's Central Jail, it will not fund a new facility, but will be split between the LASD to close the jail and the Health Services Department. A report from last year said it will take between 18 to 24 months to transport inmates to other jails. The county plans to release about 4,500 inmates to residential programs and community treatment services. Villanueva said the transport of inmates to other jails is not a viable option for the inmates. They hired a consultant. They pay the consultant God knows how much money, and the consultant told them you cannot close Men's Central Jail without a viable alternative. The fact is, we cannot close Men's Central Jail without that alternative. We need to provide a constitution level, minimum level of care for all of our inmates in our custody. We can't wish away 4,500 inmates. Villanueva also criticized the county's decision to reallocate $100 million from the LASD's budget to the alternative incarceration program, Care First, Jail Last, known as Measure J. A spokesperson for Supervisors Sheila Kuehl, Hilda Solis, Holly Mitchell, and Janice Hahn did not respond to a request for comment. The Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra teamed up with Deaf West Theatre last week to bring a new experience to their audience. In what may be a world first, they performed a classic opera for the first time with deaf actors. NTD's Daniel Hall takes us through the music. Theatergoers in Los Angeles got a sample last week to experience what the world of the deaf is like. The Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra teamed up with Deaf West Theater for three days of staging a classical opera at the Walt Disney Hall in downtown Los Angeles. The group performed Beethoven's only opera titled Fidelio. On Thursday, the first time Fidelio will be played here, uh, we will be witnessing something that is unique. It's the first time ever, ever in history. The first time an opera will be played in this way an opera composed by a deaf composer, um, you know, centuries ago. And, and as Gustavo was saying, we are now understanding what happened inside Beethoven. Why his music, why Fidelio is so deep, is so profound. And uh, it's, I think, again, I think it's the right words, it's like a revelation for all of us. The cast consisted of opera singers and deaf stage performers, while the opera singers traditionally take the role of performer, this time they coordinated with deaf actors who signed the lyrics in their performance. The production found unique challenges when pairing a deaf actor and a singer. K. 
Kimberly Mitchell, the production manager, described how much adaptability the team needed. The challenge with opera is that it's very fluid and uh, it's not repetitive. The tempos change throughout it, and night to night it even changes. The conductor, you know, kind of changes how he conducts things each night, um, and so that is something that is challenging. Yet the production worked around these challenges by using screens which are not visible to the audience. The screens let the ASL choreographer know where the deaf cast should be. Also, the opera singers themselves give cues such as opening a letter or sitting down or standing up to let the deaf actors know where they are in the music. One of the things that we've done is one of the ASL choreographers, Colin, is, is backstage um, and uh, one of our interpreters, Elizabeth, is kind of following the music and helping keep that tempo um, so that the actors have an idea of that. They're watching Gustavo, they have monitors to see him as well, but we're just kind of adding all those additional support things that we can to be able to reinforce that tempo and as it changes, allow them to fluctuate with that. Others hope to bring audiences to the deaf world through the arts. It's an opportunity to make them or to pull them into our world and it can only lead to good things, I think. I do think that seeing one of our shows is more powerful, is the most powerful way really of, of informing the world about our language and our culture. And I think two hours in one of our theaters is better than reading 500 pages in a book about the deaf community, for example. The production hopes this will bring future changes and that other operas will follow by incorporating a deaf cast in their productions. The San Francisco Bay will soon have a new zero emissions ferry floating in its waters. It's propelled completely by hydrogen fuel cells and officials say they hope it's a sign of change to come on the high seas. It's the first vessel, uh, first commercial vessel in the world that's got that, uh, that propulsion system. Pace Rowley, chief executive of Switch Maritime, said he conceived of the idea for the one-of-a-kind ferry, aptly named Sea Change, while living in New York City, trying to find ways to decarbonize the maritime industry. Uh, I was actually riding a ferry between Manhattan and Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn at the time and really thought that uh, this could be a fit for, um, for this new technology, for decarbonized technology. The 70-foot ferry will service multiple stops along San Francisco's waterfront. Built at All-American Marine Shipyard in Bellingham, Washington, Sea Change is undergoing tests with the U.S. Coast Guard in nearby Puget Sound. Officials hope it is a harbinger of the changes to come on the high seas. In the engine room, three hydrogen fuel cell stacks whir away while helping power two propellers that move the ferry along at a top speed of 20 knots. The system is automated so that when it needs power, it starts up the fuel cells. All-American Marine Project Manager Jeff Sokolik stands at the helm of the sea change, pressing buttons on a touchscreen that engage automated systems communicating with the engine room. This is going to be the next standard, is fuel cell-driven vessels. They're clean, they're efficient, and they make sense economically. Advocates say hydrogen fuel cells are cleaner than other carbon-cutting methods as they only emit water and heat, but the technology has only seen limited usage in many industries on concerns about high costs and the bulky size of fuel cell systems. But it could help the industry move towards a zero-emission future as it struggles to hit sustainability targets. You know, the shipping industry uses, on average, around 300 million tons a year of carbon-intensive fuels. Um, the impacts of that, I think, are you know pretty well known. Uh, about a, a shipping industry emits, on average, about a billion tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases a year. Rally believes the sea change could be a game changer. We can use this technology on all sorts of vessels. This also helps prove that hydrogen-based fuels can work in maritime, and I think that's a really big sort of factor for. Um, uh, for other ship owners to get comfortable adopting this technology and, uh, and, and investing in it. If all goes to plan, Rally says the boat will be delivered to the Bay Area in late May and will be serving passengers by June. A jury acquitted an Ohio doctor in the deaths of multiple hospital patients. Dr. William Husel was accused of ordering excessive painkillers for 14 of his patients. He was indicted in cases involving at least 500 micrograms of the powerful painkiller fentanyl. Prosecutors said ordering such dosages for a non-surgical situation indicated an intent to end lives. 
Husel's attorneys argued during the weeks-long trial that Husel was only practicing comfort care for his patients. Husel would have faced a sentence of life in prison with parole eligibility in 15 years had he been convicted of a single count of murder. Coming up, a Chinese oil company that was kicked off the New York Stock Exchange raises $4 billion in China. But why on earth are its Chinese competitors giving it money? And French President Emmanuel Macron faced his opponent Marine Le Pen in a TV debate last night. Opinion polls suggest Macron has maintained his lead. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. This is Lee Smith from Over the Target. I'm here to announce a brand new show available only on Epoch TV, and that's Over the Target Live, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. For an hour each Thursday, starting at 9, we'll be speaking with guests live, and I'll be taking questions from you live as well, touching on all the themes, topics, subjects, and issues that Over the Target is known for, from foreign policy and national security to this, our great American life. I'll look forward to seeing you soon, and I'll look forward to hearing from you soon, too. Thursday nights at 9 for Over the Target Live. I'm Lee Smith. Thanks. Chinese oil giant is debuting in Shanghai after recently being kicked off the U.S. stock exchange. The oil giant's IPO went pretty well, though, likely with considerable help from the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Don Ma has the details. Chinese state-owned oil giant Sinuk raised over $4 billion in its Shanghai Stock Exchange debut. It's one of this year's biggest stock sales. Sinuk's shares surged a whopping 44% Thursday. $4 billion, no doubt, is a lot of money for a debut. But here's the interesting thing. Nearly half of those shares were purchased by Chinese state-owned companies. Political scientist and economist Ethan Yang says this is likely a Chinese state directive. This is just the CCP uh, telling it's basically um, the CEOs of state-owned enterprises to start propping up the stock market by uh, purchasing stock. So in simplest terms, the success of the debut is mostly thanks to the Chinese state, and the purpose is to strengthen the Chinese stock market. So Xi Jinping has actually announced explicitly that he wants to rejuvenate and restabilize the Chinese stock market. And these state-owned enterprises are, are performing that function in the sense that they are pumping liquidity, pumping uh, money into uh, the Chinese stock market. But is government intervention in the stock market a good idea? Is this sustainable in the long run? I think it's actually extremely unsustainable because um, you are getting that short-term boost. You are getting that short-term stability. And that's what the, I think that's what the CCP needs right now is that they want to prevent a stock market crash and prevent a recession, which would be absolutely disastrous. Uh, but in the long term, they're basically just supporting companies uh, that might not deserve to actually get that money because they're only getting that money because the CCP is telling other companies to invest it into them. The $4 billion that Sinuk raised is the country's 11th biggest public stock offering. Sinuk's Hong Kong-listed shares rose as much as 4% in early trading, but later swung to a loss of roughly 3%. Don Ma, NTD News. French President Emmanuel Macron and his opponent for the presidency, Marine Le Pen, faced off in a de televised de debate yesterday. It was a crucial step for both candidates before the second and final round of the, the elections this Sunday. Observers suggest the debate has reinforced the current president's front-runner status for his re-election bid. NTD's David Vives has more from Paris. Not a disaster, but not a victory. Marine Le Pen's performance against her opponent, President Emmanuel Macron, in the only presidential debate was watched by 15 million French. Though Le Pen came across as more polished and composed than in a TV duel for the presidency in 2017, Macron cleared a major huddle on the path to re-election with a combative attitude against her. Isabelle Verrat-Masson is lead researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research and specializes in political communication and the media. She says Macron was more feisty and that Le Pen had been less aggressive than five years ago. Macron was hammering home. 
he launched attacks on a certain number of topics such as President Vladimir Putin, where he was very strong, very strong on cost of living. Xi, on the other side, was repeatedly on the defensive. Marine Le Pen said a second term of Macron would be a social disaster. She mentioned during the debate that 15,000 healthcare workers have been fired because they refused to get vaccinated against COVID. She said she would rehire these workers if she's elected. She also pointed out French public debt has widened by 60 billion euros during Macron's presidency. The French will mobilize an end to President Emmanuel Macron's first term, which has been devastating for them. They understood well last night during the presidential debate and in recent days that a second term would be even worse. Meeting the French public on Thursday, Macron defended his policy regarding public hospitals and the reduction of beds, which he was criticized for. Yes, well, we have increased our support for hospitals. It's not enough, because before doing that, you took away beds, too. I took over after 20 years of policies in which we weren't creating enough jobs. I'll be right there. What we did was we invested in salaries and in buildings. You're not seeing this yet because this was decided in recent months. The debate was watched by just 15.5 million French viewers, less than the number we watched in 2017, which was already a new low. Some share their disappointment of seeing a repetition of the 2017 election debate, while others say it won't make them change who they vote for. Macron was arrogant, it's true, but I think this is part of his character. I think he's admirable, though. The debate was clear and more easy to get into than the one in 2017. I think that, like many people, there's a real disgust of politics. We didn't expect much from the debate, nor from the second round. We already know who we should vote for, who we should not vote for. I thought it was better. There was really a battle this time. The outgoing president knew his subjects much better than Le Pen, but at the same time, he has been in power for five years. Voters will be reckoning with two opposing visions of France. Macron offers a pro-European, liberal platform, while Le Pen's nationalist manifesto is founded on deep Euroscepticism. A snap poll conducted for the BFM TV channel showed that 59% of respondents found that Macron was the more convincing of the two. However, Macron's lead in opinion polls is much narrower than five years ago, when he beat Le Pen with 66% of the votes. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, what if your eating utensils could actually make your food taste better? Well, it seems that day's not far off. Introducing flavor-enhancing chopsticks. And it's peak season for tens of millions of flowers at a California flower field. We'll take a look at that and more after the break. Some may say that better utensils make for better meals. But what if the utensils actually made your food taste better? NTD's Chenny Wu gives us a look at some technologically enhanced chopsticks. Trying to keep a low-sodium diet? Well, these flavor-enhancing chopsticks might be for you. Co-developed by a professor at Japan's Meiji University and Japanese beverage maker Kirin, the chopsticks can enhance the taste of food by using an electrical stimulation waveform. There is a computer inside this that uses electricity to float and suck the sodium ions in the food you are eating to the chopsticks. Clinical tests have found that the device enhances the salty taste of low-sodium food by up to 1.5 times. According to Miyashida and Kirin, the daily salt intake of Japanese adults is about 10 grams, which is double the amount the World Health Organization recommends. If we try to avoid taking less salt in a conventional way, we would need to endure cutting out our favorite food from our diet or endure eating bland food. Miyashida and Kirin researchers are currently refining the chopsticks and hope to commercialize it next year. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Thousands of visitors are flocking to one of Southern California's most colorful and impressive annual sites, 
the huge blooms at the Carlsbad flower fields. NTD's Chenny Woot brings us more. Tens of millions of flowers are in blossom at the Carlsbad flower fields near San Diego, California. So there, right behind me that you can see here is close to 70 million blooms. And there's nowhere, I think, in California at least, where there's this many flowers blooming right now. The flowers remain in bloom from March till May, but mid-April is said to be the best time to visit. I'd go out on a limb and say that this is the most photographed spot in Southern California. You just can't help but take photographs here. What does it take to grow so many flowers? It's a labor of love and it's a lot of love that goes into the labor to make this place look like it does. It's a nine month crop. So back in early September, we started planting. We plant roughly seven acres every two to three weeks. And the color starts on the north end of the property and then works its way down to the south. One of the big draws is the replica U.S. flag, which is made up of 20,000 petunias and has been planted annually since 9-11. The gardens will be open to the public until Mother's Day. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.